welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated radio sponsors, community partners, and just nice folks all the universe around. That was the first time I didn't stumble on my fast intro in a while. So I, I, I'm going to say the only part that I know about real quick, which is that I have sort of a special feature slash feisty Wheaties rant. Well, it's no, it's not feisty Wheaties. It's like moderately strength Wheaties for mm. the end of the show, but it is a uh, Saren special, we might say. Uh, Lauren, I understand, is going to be joining us in the middle, but you guys have the news rollout, so let's do let's do it. That's true. Uh, and we've been trying to get to this uh, this topic for a while. We've had brief versions of covering it for a bit. We wanted a little a little bit of a deeper uh, deeper look at at the Green New Deal uh, and. and and all things that sort of come of it, given how, given that at this point, you know, arguably it may be our best uh, best hope. Yeah, so, it's not yet hashed out, but we'll we'll do something about the ideological thrust behind it at least. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we're we're starting with. A, I think we'll keep talking about this probably until it happens. Is my assumption, <laughs> um, which I think is going to happen in like three years. This is my bet. Uh, but uh, let's 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 cover the first topic. Uh, yeah. So the New Deal as we all know, was a group of government and societal reforms introduced in the United States by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s in order to make a concerted collective effort towards ending the Great Depression. It was such a major proposal that the meanings of the terms liberal and conservative came simply to designate whether you were for or against the reforms. The first wave of the New Deal in 1933 came just after FDR was elected and reeled in and regulated the banks and the stock market whose recklessness had helped precipitate the disaster. It also provided today's equivalent of $10 billion in stimulus for states, cities, and communities and aimed to end cutthroat competition by bringing labor, government, and industry together through minimum wages, minimum prices, and maximum weekly hours. When these measures did not immediately bring the U.S. economy back to 1920 standards, FDR brought in a second wave of more ambitious and controversial reforms, which guaranteed workers the right to unionization and collective bargaining, had the government directly employ millions of people to build infrastructure and make art, introduced social security, helped farmers and migrant workers, helped, helped provide affordable housing, and brought some financial relief to Puerto Rico. The economy then went back into a recession in 1937, after the government scaled back its spending, which paradoxically prevented FDR from bringing in any new major reforms, even though it showed that his stimulus spending was working for the economy. New Deal programs remained pretty much intact into the mid-70s until deregulation became the norm, and in the 1900s, even, even important banking regula regulation was dropped, which partially led to the housing crash of 2008. A number of these programs, of course, still exist in the United States today, the most popular, of course, being Social Security, but also including the Tennessee Valley Authority, which has recently been closing coal plants in the South. As Kate Aronoff pointed out back in November, what FDR said to Congress in 1935 could easily apply to 2019. He said, quote, Little groups of earnest men and women have told us of the evils that we have brought upon ourselves today and the even greater evils that will attend our children unless we act. Such is the condition that attends the exploitation of our natural resources if we continue our planless course. Enter the Green New Deal, which is so-called because it aims, the, it aims to address the increasingly dire threat of climate change through such a collective societal and economic overhaul as envisioned by the original New Deal, this time making sure that frontline communities most impacted by environmental injustice and inequality are brought into the fold so as not to simply have a new deal for middle-class whites. 
The idea of a Green New Deal first started floating around about 15 years ago and was included in some measure in Barack Obama's 2008 platform, but was put on the back burner and the U.S. Democratic Party has been on a turtleish defensive ever since on everything from climate to military in the face of an increasingly intransigent and even rogue Republican Party. Mr. Noam Chomsky, having long entered his devil-may-care dotage, has over the past few years been characterizing the contemporary Republican Party as the most dangerous organization in the history of humankind, since, with their warmongering and new happy attitude and sociopathic denial of climate change, appear hell-bent on the utter destruction of the human race. Indeed, in just another dire warning amidst a trend of increasingly dire warnings, the United Nations is reporting that unless major unprecedented action is taken to mitigate climate change, the, quote, ecological foundations of society could crumble. Since even if the Paris Agreement proves to be a total success, winter in the Arctic could rise between 3 and 5 degrees Celsius in just 30 years and 5 to 9 degrees Celsius in 60 years, with the consequent devastation from sea level rise. They say we are currently locked into that rise unless we make truly major changes. Thankfully, we have a new wave of youthful and energized climate activists and a few politicians who understand the connection between labor rights, economic inequality, and environmental justice. Green New Deal proponents aim to combine FDR's economic approach with social justice, renewable energy, and resource efficiency. The plan, which is currently very broad and vague, is nothing short of society-wide economic and social overhaul, organized democratically to empower the average citizen and bring together typically disparate groups like environmentalists, blue-collar workers, and racialized minorities. Yeah, so there's, we, have, we have more, but I just want to jump in here for a half second to, to sort of, I, I guess, talk briefly about why, why, why this level of scale is necessary. Uh, because I think often when you get plans that are so wide, wide ranging and in, 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 in wide shaping, you, you, you people sort of attack it, being like, "Well, this is like you're just trying to get everything you've always wanted." Uh, that's been the attack uh, on 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 the sort of left wing's response to the climate crisis for quite some time. Um, you know, see it here in Canada with the leap proposal and all this stuff like that. Uh, and so and so there's this there's that version of this kind of attack that we keep seeing. Uh, but the reason why this matters, uh, in reason why you need this type of scale, uh, a is we'll get to later the the sort of differences between, uh, the, say, the Macron, the neoliberal response, and how that's going over, which is, spoiler, <laughs> not great. Um, but, uh, but for this particular brief second, I, I want to cover the fact that income inequality is an environmental issue. Um, uh, and, and, and racial justice is an environmental issue. Uh, from a standpoint that, the, that society, we, we've created a society right now in which the rich don't have to care because they're able to externalize all of the, all of the truly horrendous things they're doing to the planet and to the people who are, who, who are they impacting. Um, and, so, and so the fact that you have a 1% billionaire class who can own mega yachts that they can just be sailing around the seas for the rest of eternity um, and, and don't have to worry about this is a major blocker for environmental action. Uh, and reducing income quality would get real action. Um, and, and on the, in the same front, uh, you know, the fact that we're a, that pe- the society has been able to, to infringe, uh, on, on, on marginalized communities all across the world as a way to get away with, you know, not cleaning up after yourself or, or, or dumping your pollution in places where these minor, m- marginalized communities wouldn't be able to sort of, you know, push back as effectively is again, environmental issue. You raise, if you, if you, if you raise the, 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 the standards that we have um, for for what Kansas for for living, 
um, you you empower a uh, the populace to to fight back for the good of everyone, um, and and so that is at its core part of the reason why this is whole operation is necessary. Now you can't just do these little bits, um, or you can just do these little bits, but you won't see the truly trend, you won't see the action you need because we haven't solved these sort of underlying problems. No, I just wanted to throw. I'm sorry. Uh, I just wanted to throw onto that really quickly because this this uh, we're not going to be able to transition. That would have been a good lead into my special thing. So I just want to flag that on the way by that the people who are making these types and we'll come back to this. So put a note. Uh, with the people who are making these types of decisions, like saying what types of actions we need to take, like remember as an easy example, Will Barras, who's the uh, I forget the finance secretary. Anyway, he's an extremely powerful, rich billionaire who is a buddy of Trump's and who's currently being investigated for all types of fraud. Uh, and defrauding the American government and all that stuff and, and self-dealing and all that sort of thing. They don't know how much a can of soup costs, right? These are the people who have never been in a grocery store in their life and they think a can of soup is $100. Wilbur Ross said in an interview with a straight face that he doesn't understand why government workers who hadn't been paid for a month had to go to food banks. Like he was actually confused. So like, <laughs> keep in mind, so the, you'll, you'll know why I'm putting a pin on that when we get to my special section, but that's an important caveat as we go by who are making these decisions. Yeah, so uh, let's jump back in. Yeah, so as pointed out by many writers and commenters on the subject, the Green New Deal has enjoyed a shockingly quick rise in salience over the past few months, especially after the U.S. congressional elections in 2018, when record numbers of women and non-white people entered the U.S. House of Representatives. There has also been a huge insurgence of youth activism following a hellish summer and a series of apocalyptic warnings from scientists about the future of the planet if we fail to drastically change the carbon status quo in a matter of 10 to 15 years. Since sitting Democrats really had no plan to deal with climate change, the new demands made by activists and new Congress members have exposed what I would term the condescending naivety of the Democratic establishment, who for decades have had no real vision or ambition, opting instead to dole out minor reforms to an increasingly volatile economy and widening social divide. We now have organizations like the Uncompromising Sunrise Movement and bold and unlikely politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who are actively trying to change American politics forever and to finally and collectively have an explicitly existential discussion of how climate change directly threatens everybody's access to food, shelter, and security. However, as David Roberts writes for Vox, quote, it remains an almost outlandishly ambitious undertaking to coordinate and develop a coherent policy platform that can guide a transformation of the economy, decarbonize every economic sector, guarantee every American a well-paying job with good benefits, strengthen the resilience of the country's most vulnerable communities, command the support of politicians from every region of the country, and inspire enthusiasm among, uh, and, and, and action among activists, end quote. Kate Aronoff writes for The Outline, quote, The solutions are obvious. Keep as much coal, oil, and gas underground as possible and put society's resources to work building a more equitable and low-carbon world, end quote. She also points out that failing to act will cost the global economy hundreds of trillions of dollars and cost the U.S. alone tens of trillions, and that there are $26 trillion in gains to be had for the global economy over the next 10 years if we collectively decarbonize quickly. We mentioned uh, This we mentioned last year <clears throat> when the 2018 report of the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate came out titled Unlocking the Inclusive Growth, Growth Story of the 21st Century. There will, of course, however, be some losses to be incurred by the ultra-rich and the industry magnates and their scions. But Aronoff wrote for the NBC in November, quote, electrifying everything 
constraining the power of the world's most powerful industry and preparing for what will almost certainly be the largest mass migration in human history don't slot neatly into a Medicare for all style policy or slogan. David Roberts also reports, however, the excitement coming out of the new consensus, a democratic policy group that will be a foundational research body for hashing out the details of the Green New Deal, quoting policy analyst Rihanna Gunn-Wright as stating, I've never worked on a policy issue where I was met with so much goodwill, people who share information, people willing to leverage their talents and have conversations. That gives me a lot of hope. Although it is currently very vague, it's generally accepted that the Green New Deal will focus around rapid decarbonization, justice, jobs, and infrastructure. And asking how it will be paid for is almost a red herring, since it's not as much a question of who is going to fork up the cash for it, but how to mobilize the resources to create an equitable and stable society for the centuries to come. And since we Western democracies are still daring to call ourselves democratic, each citizen at least ostensibly has the right to think about and participate in that change. As Roberts puts it, quote, Climate politics is, now as ever, a choice between changes that seem impossible and a future that seems unthinkable. Facing it squarely means radicalism. Now, a real response to climate change, a response on the scale of what the crisis demands, is on the table. It's an option. It has a name. Yeah. And I think this is this is the key of it here. Um, I was thinking about this a couple of days ago about how refreshing it would be uh, to to be able to change uh, the the unbelievable energy that is that it, that exists right now, you know, pushing towards uh, different environmental change. You know, uh, later we'll, later in this episode, we'll cover we'll cover the the Fridays for Future strikes. And if you're looking at some of the some of the you know there are people there are hundreds or thousands of of, of youth marching across the world today. And I think if we I think to th- to see that to see all of that as a uh, as a, as so much energy that could be unlocked or used to to make this transition possible, um, it is incredible. And and, and to, it's that it's that it's that shift I think of understanding and, and of of realization um, that that when you ask the question who's going to pay for it is is almost is, is such a silly question <laughs> from a standpoint of well. Money won't matter if we don't. Like, 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 it sort of the the crisis is at a foundational level that that to that to that you're almost sort of using the 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 structure and the constructs of the of of, of the society that uh, that created this crisis to then critique any solutions to the crisis. And I'm not saying that you have to lose all money to make this, you know, to to be able to you know decarbonize. That's not what I'm saying. But there is unquestionably a, a, a effort here and a, and a requirement here um, to to think beyond usual uh, w- responses because the because the future is the, the the change future it will have to be so huge um, you know and and so there's you know the, the the fact that this transition has to occur is is enough of a reason that to 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 start trying and and I think the idea that um, the sort of question of like when you start trying, I think we'll start seeing a whole bunch of things start rolling and a whole bunch of people start rolling. And and I think truly uh, transform change is possible because of how much energy right now is used to saying, hey, everyone, we should stop doing what we're doing. And it could be all transitioned to let's actually start doing the work. 
Yeah, and the next time whoever said that uh, needs an ambulance, we were like, ah, no, man, I'd love to help you get to the hospital, but who's going to pay for it? <laughs> Well, we charge for ambulances. This is what's ridiculous. Um, you know, we're, we, we, we'd love to stop your cancer, and we can, but just ah, oh, man, money. <laughs> and, and 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 it's those types of things that like, that we still haven't even got got beyond. Right? People can hear that and, and, and respond in a way that is like that's terrible, and yet it is exactly what we're doing in so many places. Um, I'm but, sorry. One more. The the guy, the the oil executive who was throwing, uh, like flipping his lid. We covered this like two years ago because he was from an oil company, and a different oil company wanted to put a pipeline near his land, and he flipped out. Yes. Um, yeah. These are like like it's it's uh, it, the difficulty we have is that we've created a society that cannot imagine a society different than ours. Uh, we've created a society that is that is global in reach, and therefore we just do not have a, uh, an understanding of how to respond because it feels so everywhere and so pervasive. And that's what's really interesting about the uh, Fridays for Future and the and the younger activists getting involved is because as teenagers, you're you're looking, are you already looking at the narrative that society is giving you and what your options are within it? And when you start thinking about how that narrative can actually be uh, changed, there's a lot of energy there. As you mentioned, yeah, and uh, and I think the question here is how quickly can we harness that and actually start using it instead of forcing them to get more and more mad until we until it breaks. Uh, but I want to get to the music break as quickly as possible because I do want to get back uh, so we can have Lauren on the phone for as long as possible and talk about more Green New Deal and then a couple other things. Uh, so, Saren, what do we got? The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And welcome here to The Green Majority here on CAUT 89.5 FM or on one of our wonderful radio syndicates or perhaps on the podcast, which you can listen to anywhere in the world, including outside of this world on the space. Uh, so I believe we're here now joined by Lauren. Lauren, how are you doing? I'm doing super well. How about yourself? Yeah, quite well, quite well. Um, so we have a we have a one extra extension onto this Green New Deal story, which will help us lead into it. Uh, and it's a it's a comparison between between a carbon tax and the Green New Deal solution. So we'll, we're going to go to that, and then we'll we'll get your sort of comments on the whole the whole deal. Um, so yes, <clears throat> in addition to those who remain in steadfast denial of the existence of global warming. There are those who push back against any systemic shift and advocate instead for a carbon tax and little to nothing else, and in some cases not even desiring to invest that revenue in green projects, but giving it directly back to citizens, also known as a carbon dividend. Different forms of the carbon tax are supported by liberals and conservatives alike, with the argument that it is the only climate solution that isn't going to upset anybody too much. As Marianne Lavelle suggested for Inside Climate News, People arguing for systemic change versus those arguing for a market solution and a market solution alone have typically been scuffling in the shadows as nothing gets done. But since things have heated up and momentum has shifted, the debate between the two factions is gaining traction. The former are worried about the daunting pace of climate change and the social disarray caused by inequality, whereas the latter <clears throat> are more concerned with appeasing energy companies, which tend to want trade-offs like immunity and regulations from climate lawsuits, uh, immunity from regulations and climate lawsuits in exchange for a formal carbon tax plan. There are some U.S. Republicans who take climate change seriously, but they worry that a Green New Deal would try to kill nuclear, hydro, and natural gas in too short of a time frame. 
Sunrise Movement spokesman Benjamin Finnegan said, quote, The door is not closed to cap-and-trade and carbon taxes. The important thing is that carbon taxes are simply not enough. What is needed to avert the climate crisis is a massive restructuring and mobilization, an overhaul of our economy and society, the likes of which has not been seen since World War II. And as, as we'll recall, it was ultimately World War II that brought an end to the Great Depression. So far, big names in U.S. economics are mostly in favor of a carbon dividend, which, as tepid as it is, is still a big deal when it comes to environmental policy in the U.S. One former chair of the Federal Reserve said, quote, It shows broad agreement among, among economists and experienced policymakers that carbon dividends is the most cost-effective, equitable, and policy-viable climate solution. Younger activists, on the other hand, seem to want to dismantle the fossil fuel industry entirely rather than wait around for it to find a way to switch to renewables while maintaining its massive profits and share of power. While a carbon tax will probably be a centerpiece of any Green New Deal, it's not clear where the votes will stand if Democrats, even if Democrats get into the White House in two years. In any case, there are two carbon dividend plans on the table in the U.S., with one starting at $40 per ton of carbon pollution and rising to $50 by 2030, and the other starting at $20 per ton and rising to $100 by 2030. In Canada, the federally mandated carbon tax is set to rise to $50 per ton by 2022, but if this were our only climate policy, it would probably need to, be, need to triple or quadruple what is proposed in order to have a meaningful effect. Meanwhile, we have several premiers in Canada, of course, doltishly fighting even that low bar, with at least Doug Ford and Scott Moe still trying to sue the federal government to stop any carbon tax. All right. Uh, so there we have it. Uh, your <coughs> thoughts, Lauren? <coughs> yeah. Um, so I guess addressing sort of first that whole like sort of juxtaposing or, or, or pitting the carbon price against, against a Green New Deal. And, and first off, and, and you, didn't, you didn't say this, David, but just so listeners are, are like super clear, a Green New Deal isn't anti-carbon price. It's the idea that a carbon price is one specific, narrow policy that cannot possibly address all of climate change. It's, it's not a silver bullet solution, um, and anybody that says it is, <laughs> is lying to you. Um, and then also, for any, for any, you know, like, liberal politicians who might be listening, I'm sure we have maybe one or two, but um, I'm going to provide you some advice right now. And I'm not going to charge you for it. And um, and I minored in poli sci, so clearly I'm an expert. Here. But um, running on a carbon price as your climate solution in this next election will result in you losing. The liberals will lose this next election if the only thing they can offer in terms of a climate solution is a carbon price, and they hammer home on it. Um, I think it's hilarious. David, you touched on the idea that um, there are certain folks within the political community who think that a carbon price is the most palatable solution, and it's the only thing that we can propose to people that they will accept. And clearly, that is built on a bed of lies, um, visible not only from from people like Doug Ford and and uh, the uh, the premier of, of Manitoba, whose name totally escapes me right now, but like not only is there pushback from the political class, there's pushback from from everyday people. I mean. Although I disagree with the yellow vest on on most everything, what what they demonstrate, if nothing else, is that there's a whole lot of people who are really, really opposed to a carbon price as it's presented. Um, And A, because it it comes off as a tax, because it is, but, but also because I think you get people who are who are center and left and and who maybe who who aren't on the right is what I'm saying, who oppose a carbon price or, or are, are disappointed by a carbon price or turned off by it because it's too small a solution, because people know it's too small a solution. 
studies have been done and focus groups and polls have been done, um, people, everyday Canadians, want a big solution because they know it's a big problem. People don't like it when politicians come to them and pander and say, oh, it's really not a big deal. We'll get it under control if only we can execute these small incremental changes. No, people people know that climate change is catastrophic and all-encompassing. And, and that's why something like a Green New Deal is so exciting for people and something that so many people, on average, when they're polled, I think in the States, uh, more research has been done, but it's something like 80% of Americans, when they're presented with the idea of a, of a Green New Deal, are, are for it. Um, and, and that's because it's an all-encompassing solution to an all-encompassing problem. And the best thing about it is that it, it prioritizes people from all sorts of communities, including marginalized ones, whether that's sort of a real or perceived marginalization. It, it's showing that it, this brave new world that we're trying to move into isn't going to abandon you. It's not going to leave you behind, whether you were a coal worker or, or somebody who works in a non-fossil fuel-related industry. You're going to be taken care of in this um, shiny new eco-socialist world we have planned. So, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think that's 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 an important uh, aspect. The, the political aspect here is is huge, right? In, in part because you know the idea, whoever. It's it's kind of amazing that the the most palatable quote unquote solution that's being presented is is a tax. You know, like no one likes those. Uh, like it is one of those things where like it is that is known to be one of the least of, like like most effective actual policies, but le- from standpoint of like reducing income inequality, but a but an, a completely ineffective messaging system. And so the idea mm-hmm. that that is sort of being billed as the as the biggest solution, whereas when when you're consistently surrounded by these types of other. Uh, you know the the types of solutions that include you know um, actually helping people directly. You know, like it's 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 interesting. Sort of, uh, there's an inter- very interesting conversation previously about that, 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 about what makes a good and bad policy. And in 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 sort of the 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 research sort of doled out that good policy does sort of these broad these broad things that in 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 sort of quiet ways. Uh, but but that sort of broad quiet policy. Uh, doesn't actually doesn't actually fly well for the populace because you only hear about the losers and not the winners, right? And that's what a carbon tax does. There's no winners in a carbon tax. Well, there are, but they aren't they aren't sort of front and center. Whereas mm-hmm. whereas the Green New Deal allows you to fr- put front and center. These are the communities we're actively helping. Yes, it includes this 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 price, but there's truly a bunch of communities and the environment that are being helped. And so from a messaging standpoint, mm-hmm. it lets you lead with the with the people who are being helped rather than the people who are being you know rather than the maligned you know, oil industry that is mad again. Sorry, just, exactly. really, uh, just really quickly, I wanted to uh, just add the why to what you were saying, Lauren, which is the, I agree completely, and, and I wanted to just add the why, which is that essentially, like, politically speaking, there's two constituencies that exist right now. There are people who watch Alex, Alex Jones and will think that literally anything with the word green or climate in it is a conspiracy and will be against it, no matter what it says, and people who understand enough about climate change to know that what's being proposed is not is inadequate. So I just wanted to hammer home how absolutely right I think you are. There is zero constitu- constituency and zero votes to be gained by weak sauce climate proposals mm-hmm. yeah, yeah um and so let, let's let to well, you, there is another we want to talk about fridays of the future too so let's uh let's jump to that story briefly because it can all be wrapped up in the same thing 
Oh, yeah. All I have is that uh, today, this very day, the biggest ever Fridays for Future rally is being held worldwide in at least 112 countries. There are 200 demonstrations in Germany alone, and who knows how many uh, in over 100 cities in the United States. So hundreds of thousands of young students, calling themselves the voiceless future of humanity, are skipping school and rallying before their governments to demand climate action. I don't know how many are happening in Canada. Yeah, there's well, there's there's, a, there's one today in Queens Park uh, happening in about half an hour. So, um, but yeah, and, and, the, and this is it. This is the thing about like talk about trying try to explain to these teens that we're going to charge thirty dollars a ton for carbon and that's going to solve the problems. Like, just I I, I defy you. You know, Trudeau, you're the minister of youth. Go speak to these youths, inform them of your thirty dollar a ton plan, uh, and and let me know how they feel about that. Despite a year of Doug Ford, I'm pretty sure our high school students can do math in Ontario. I'm pretty sure it hasn't done that much damage yet. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but, uh, but, but your connections and thoughts, Lauren? Uh, yeah, um, I guess um, I guess the sort of plain, to, I, I, like, we don't just want to keep citing numbers, but um, this is according to CNN, so I'm sure it's lowballing. I'm sure this is a conservative number, but they said something like uh, 1,693 strikes in 106 countries in 1,500 municipalities across the country. So if if you're listening right now and you're like, oh my gosh, I want to get involved, there's like there's such a good chance that there's some sort of event that's already happening in your city or in your town. And if there isn't, and you do really want to get out there and show your support, whether you're a student or whether you're just supporting youth action and youth climate leadership, then it can be as simple as make a kick-ass sign and take a picture of yourself and put it out onto social media because there needs to be a what there already is but just contribute to that deluge of content out there today showing youth leadership and showing support for that because yeah it's 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 so exciting um and and obviously one day of marching isn't gonna isn't gonna be what saves us but what's so cool about events like this is that young people come out to this maybe they've never been to a march before maybe they've never gotten involved in organizing before but they go to an event like this they meet new people they meet other folks who are like them who share these same passions and and then from there they they can build affinity groups and get involved in organizations and, and continue to escalate and to find different ways of making change like today is today is absolutely just the beginning or it's it's not the beginning. This has been happening for months now, but it's just a stepping stone. So for anybody, I know there's um, there's a sort of an activist philosopher out there who, who, who shall remain nameless. But I saw him tweeting this morning being like something like the youth aren't going to save us. It's all old people in power kind of kind of disparaging stuff today. And I just can't help but feel like that not only did nobody ask for your opinion, it's totally unhelpful. Because yeah, like we know we know one March isn't what's gonna save us. We know one afternoon isn't what's gonna stop climate catastrophe, but anything that gets people involved and, and heightens the visibility and makes people feel like they're part of something important is so rad and is so impactful and so meaningful um, because how how can you possibly look at an entire generation of young people and say oh well sorry the power's in the hands of the old people so you're I can't swear on air but like right yeah I don't know we we did you tweet back at them saying uh, it's still infinitely more useful than sitting on your couch and disparaging <laughs> other people who are actually trying to help you know I I didn't because it only had eight likes last time I checked mm. and I just didn't want to draw any more attention to it. That, that <laughs> makes sense. And, and, and that is, and, and that is it, right? There's, a, there's what I'm consistently kind of, I want to keep reminding people is, is that this is only going to escalate from a standpoint of, you know, these are these, this set of youth are, um, you know, 
are are the are sort of you know like these youth have been a mainstay of, the, of these protests for years, but this kind of high school sort of age movement, they're the ones who are being told that you know that by the time they hit thirty, that they will be in climate breakdown, or uh, and so. And, and and can you imagine? I'm just thinking of you know the, the the even younger children who will end up being 14 when we hit that point, and everyone's gonna have to explain to them, oh, yeah, we just didn't do anything, and they're gonna be like, why? And we're like, oh, it seemed hard, like <laughs> like it it, it it the the milk toast responses to these kids is 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 so stark, and I think that's what makes them so powerful is that they are saying, hey, my life is in jeopardy. What are you doing about it? And and the answer cannot be. Uh, you know, a, a milk toast response. Um, but uh, there's, we have one last uh, sort of story about about Alberta. Uh, so let's let's get in there briefly before we finish. Yeah. So um, Canada's own oil-rich province of Alberta currently has a carbon tax of thirty dollars per ton. Uh, although a provincial election will be held this spring, which could see a conservative government dismantle that system. In the meantime, however, Alberta does seem to be moving toward 30% renewable electricity by 2030, as they will soon be holding their fourth auction to award contracts to companies who can deliver $10 billion Canadian by 2030 in renewables investment. If United Conservative Party leader Jason Kenney is elected in the spring, he may or may not scrap that program. All that his party has said is that they refuse to subsidize renewables. Renewables are not, however, currently subsidized in Alberta, and his party is certainly in favor of continued major subsidies for fossil fuels. And to end the emerging renewable energy market in Alberta would certainly create that much-feared investor uncertainty that Canadian Conservatives love to warn us about. One recalls Doug Ford's scrapping of 750 renewable energy projects in Ontario just weeks after he was elected. Alberta is already paying $1.3 billion Canadian to coal plant owners, all of which plants they are hoping to close by 2030. Solar industry lobbyist John Gorman writes for the Calgary Herald, quote, In 2016, it was not uncommon to hear electricity sector pundits sounding the alarm that Alberta's target of 30% renewable electricity by 2030 could not be achieved without pain for the economy and chaos for the electricity grid. The very idea that electricity could be low-cost, reliable, and free of greenhouse gas emissions was fantasy in the detractors' minds, despite growing global experience to the contrary. And I'm just going to quote him twice more here. He says, Alberta government decision-makers should note that one-quarter of the population population of the United States now live in a state that targets 100% non-emitting electricity. New York and Colorado by 2040, California and Hawaii by 2045, Connecticut by 2050, and Illinois, Nevada, and Maine. A recent supply chain study of the solar electricity sector in Alberta by Solus Energy Consulting Incorporated found a potential of $4.1 billion in market value and labor force and a labor force rising to 10,000 in 2030. Yeah, so like, man, the, the, the what Alberta politics are perhaps uh, at least as depressing uh, as Ontario politics are these days. Um, and 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 it's interesting to see that that you know in this, uh, it'll be interesting to see how history remembers these four years uh, of, of 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 the NDP in Alberta. Um, in that, and I say that in part because I I truly do not believe that they will be reelected. Um, as much as it would be better if they did, um, but uh, like there is a it, it it's it is a just a underlying question 
um, that I have about how this will go. And yet there will be some things like this. Like you can't once you're on this path, it's it like there's a percentage chance that Kenny will come in and actually start like literally tearing down windmills as a way to like, you know, have his like I tore something down moment, which seems to be a requirement <laughs> for any conservative government coming into power. Um, but but there is there's gonna be some lasting change here and, and I and I and I truly hope that that some of this stuff does stick around. Uh, but we have about two minutes left, so Lauren, I want to give you a last word. It just galls me that Jason Kenney comes out and, and says he refuses to subsidize the renewable energy sector because that like that is tantamount to like you can't be pro worker whether or not you're you're pro labor movement pro union obviously I understand that that's that it's that's quite leftist in theory but the idea that you're refusing to subsidize and support an entire sector saying that you don't care about those workers that you're that you're comfortable completely screwing over an entire industry blows my mind um, and the fact that it's coming from somebody who 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 claims to be pro worker who claims to be there and supporting the blue collar class i don't know it it doesn't make sense to me how anybody could hear that and still want to vote for somebody like that especially if if they're a laborer themselves i don't know yeah, and, you know, so we'll we will we'll, we'll follow this closely as well. Um, but uh, before we go to break, so we're going to come back with a special one and I want to say uh, shout out to all of the uh, Friday for Futures protesters across the world uh, and keep fighting uh, for your f- f- for this. This is important, and you're doing great work. Uh, so, throwing a stand for the next music break. Thank you so much, Lauren, as always, uh, and we'll talk to you next week. We're just waiting to see. Your days are numbered Cause my days are numbered too and welcome back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as the podcast listeners, who we like just 0.01% better, just because. If you want to be one of those people, go to greenmajority.ca, and you can read some of Dave's wonderful writing, as long as uh, as well as all of our shows, well, at least 200 hours of our shows. Yes, so many hours. <laughs> uh, Dave, you've been doing the posts recently. Uh, what is our what, are, what count are we up to? Do you know? You mean numbers of episodes? Yeah, what's the number on the end of the... This will be the 650. Whew, not bad. Not bad. Okay, yeah, a whole so... number. That's kind of fun. That's a whole number. Yeah. Perfect timing. So, a couple of things. Uh, so, I asked for some time today because there was a topic I wanted to talk about and also something I wanted to share and then a small announcement. Uh, I will give you, because uh, I want you guys to chip in on this as well, I'll give you the first digs. Do you want to hear about the special project or do you want to hear my uh, Feisty Weedy rant? Let's start with the special project. Okay. I was hoping for the Feisty rant. <laughs> We'll end with a spi- feisty right, fine, weenies. Fine. We'll end with a feisty weenies. We need to we need to call Lauren to break the tie. Okay, <laughs> uh, I actually wish she was here for uh, for the for the ranty bit. I'd love to hear what she has to say about that. Maybe we'll we'll play it again another week. So um, so the news. We're going to start with the news. So I uh, entered a hackathon last week, uh, and the theme was actually sustainability, as uh, you may have uh, may have caught here and there. Uh, I'm just actually wrapping up full stack uh, web developer school. So I'm like coding and things now and it's really cool. And, uh, and so hackathon is basically, uh, they give you an idea. You meet a bunch of random strangers and then you have literally 24 hours as in people sleep there and stay up all night to develop something, uh, and then win a prize. So we won and our, uh, that was really great. And that's going to help me get a job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, the idea was really cool. So obviously it's just 24 hours. We didn't get 
we didn't obviously finish the idea, but it was a really good idea. And my team, uh, I've been really happy with them as a number of uh, like second and third year university students. So quite a, quite a bit younger than me. Uh, we had a great team and we're going to finish the project. So I just sort of wanted to uh, put that on the table and just tell you guys a little bit about what the project was. And then maybe you can give me some feedback. So because this was our like came up with it in 10 minutes and then almost got it working in 24 hours sort of thing. So mm-hmm. I don't know. So the idea essentially was. Um, there's a lot of like apps and stuff that help you like manage your life, but they're so complicated that like managing those apps that are supposed to help you do stuff becomes like you then have to manage the app, right? So like there's a lot of tools that people try and do to like improve the greenness in their life or, or just, you know, maybe exercise more or whatever, all these like life helper things that are supposed to help you do things that just kind of become another thing you have to manage. So our idea was, was that we want to, uh, specifically target food waste. And we specifically want to target food waste in the home because most of the food is like you buy food is perfectly good food and then you forget to eat it. Right. Or or you're not or you don't, you know, or something gets pushed to the back of the fridge. Right. But usually when we're buying food, right, when you go to the grocery store and you come home and you bought that parsley, the whole bunch of parsley, because, you know, you just want a little but you know, when you're buying it, that most of it's like, I'll find something to put this in. No, you won't. It's going in the garbage. Right. <laughs> So the way that this thing works is the technology that we got to use was a Google Home, which is a a speech technology. And it has, uh, this was the part that didn't quite get working, but that was the PHP developers. And that was, uh, my product got finished. (laughs) It was quite challenging. But the idea basically was to uh, mount a Google Home to your fridge. And it, uh, it, we uh, created a script that allows uh, text-to-speech and for that text-to-speech to be mounted uh, onto a web server and with through a user authentication system. So basically what it means that you would do is that you would actually talk to your fridge. And anytime you're putting something in it that you know that you're going to need some help remembering to use, it could be uh, leftovers, it could be carrot. It could be a bag of bean sprouts, whatever it is, you know this is going to be a thing when I, I always waste this is that it actually uh, is going to take your uh, voice, not just remember the voice, but actually do text-to-speech interpretation, find out what type of thing it is, and then assign an average uh, expiry date to it. So that if you go and you're bringing home your thing, maybe you have $200 worth of groceries, but you have like one thing of uh, parsley that you know is going to go bad. You're like, oh, I need a reminder. So the only thing you tell it is, hey, food buddy, parsley. It knows what parsley is. It gives it a three-day timer. And then two days from now and three days from now, the next time you open your fridge, it goes, you have parsley about to expire. So it's not fully worked out. We didn't get the hardware working and all that stuff, but it was just really exciting project to work on. And I think it was a really cool idea. We got first place for it. So that was really great. And and hopefully we're going to finish it. Uh, and I wanted to talk about that, A, just because I wanted to share that. It was something really exciting that happened to me that's environmental. Uh, but also because this is like now that I've been going through school, like the third cool app, environmentally focused app that <laughs> I've thought of. And I'm still working on that news scraper idea that we talked about and all these other things. So, I mean, A, I just wanted to share that because it's, you know, partially my show and I do what I want. Uh, but also just because I think it's relevant and these are like things that I'd be really interested in working on um, but I currently need to find a job so <laughs> it partially was like hey this is a cool thing that happened but also partially was like hey if there's any developers out there who who are interested in these types of projects and have some free time hey I'm now both an environmentalist and a radio host and a developer and uh, and maybe reach out so you can reach uh, if you're interested in that or if you have other like environment apps you're working on maybe you want to like try we, we may if when I actually fi- finish them we'll end up like listing links to them on the website or whatnot so maybe stuff like that I just sort of want to, to just to share that news so uh what do you guys think of my idea i like that um if the if the accuracy of the expiration date can be <coughs> can be quite uh, good because uh it's when you put something in the fridge it's often like i've this has been there for, for a few days i'm not sure whether this is expired or not i'm just going to forget about it now right mm-hmm. so i really like that in terms of like oh this is probably about to expire think about this now 
rather right. than just wondering whether or not it has expired and being frightened of that. Right. And so usually these would be these weren't these aren't going to be for like prepared items because those things the like that's sort of a different story. This is mostly like for for the food that tends to be wasted most, which is buying fresh food and then yeah. not using all of it. So it's yeah. it's it's very focused on or a like, very specific use. My carrot is really floppy now. You know, <clears throat> is it edible? What type of digestion right. is this going to give me? Yeah. Can this be what 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 are the nutri what's the nutrition value in this floppy sure. carrot? So hilariously, I know you're partially joking, but that all that information is actually available by, by API, and we do plan on working it. So is. I think you were I think you might have been partially kidding, but it's, I seriously no, I'm that's serious. possible. I'm yeah. serious. I want to know the nutrition <laughs> value of a squishy potato and whether or not it's fully digestible. Yeah. And so the phase one was just to do the voice activation, which we actually honestly we can finish. Like we had the skills, we just ran out of time, so that like that's doable, and we plan on finishing it. Uh, a cool like because you always try and think of you know like what would the next step be when you're presenting like you want to like make your idea sound as good as possible so you'll often you know do whatever you can and then you try and like say that well the next thing if we had more time would be to add this right you just sort of flush out the idea more so the thing that i was thinking about was actually like a version two of this with that came maybe you know google uh invest some money and we develop some custom stuff for them or something uh would be to actually make use of in uh large farms and large uh, uh like agro business um they use among other things infrared cameras to detect those types of things mm. and so i was looking at like a home use infrared camera where you'd say parsley and then hold the parsley up and it would actually like derive based on the the infrared combination of chlorophyll actually you know it knows what it is and it knows what state of decomposition it's currently in and would actually be able to based on that technology give you an extremely accurate expiry date yes, sweet. so all these things are super cool and it just i just really was just i'm just loving it so I, there are a i wanted to share b uh, it's some environment stuff uh that's coming up that you know, assuming, uh, uh, assuming I, if, well, if I don't get a job, it'll be done next week. If I do get a job, it'll be done in a few months, but those are things a, just for interest and B also, if there are other people with any sort of developer or technical skills, uh, interested in sort of maybe chipping in for the resume, being part of a project, something like that, reach out. Uh, and that's, that's my news section. So we'll cut that there. Nice. All right. Well, we've got 10 minutes for your feisty readies man. So. Okay. So yeah, the announcement's just like sort of a brief thing. So uh, here's what, here's what we're going to do. So slight pivot. So, uh, I'm not, I'm not actually going to have to say a lot, a lot to say about this. I do want to let you guys sort of chip in on it too. So I'm really just kind of going to play the clip, but I want to just set the clip up. Right. So, um, it's, uh, AOC is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's the name, uh, name reputable, uh, young, uh, Congress person from the U S um, has been making a lot of news among other people. She's certainly not the only one. Uh, but as they're the first sort of uh, young people that haven't been already corrupted by the system that is the American pol political <laughs> system, um, they're going into meetings that are usually pretty like friend, like buddy, buddy, like, hey, we golf together. But now I, I guess I have to ask you some questions mm. that are supposed to seem tough. And then these people who are coming in and that real people like us going in there and actually asking these people questions. And this is the reason I want to play this, not because I uh, enjoy hearing AOC take a strip off the Wells Fargo CEO, because I do. <laughs> but that's not why. The reason why is because I want you to listen carefully to his answer. Okay, so I'm going to play the clip, and we're gonna, we might play it again, but I just I want to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, and then we'll, we'll discuss. Listen to the Wells Fargo CEO's answer. Very important. Week from mm -hmm. the Dakota Access Pipeline. Mm -hmm. uh, why shouldn't Wells Fargo pay for the cleanup of it if, since it paid for the construction of the pipeline itself? Because we don't operate the pipeline. We provide financing to the company that's operating the pipeline. Our responsibility is to ensure that at the time that we make that loan, that that, that customer, and we have a group of people in Wells Fargo, including an environmental oversight group headed by one of my colleagues who used to be at the EPA. Uh, so one question, why did did Wells Fargo finance this pipeline when it was widely seen to be environmentally unstable? 
Uh, again, the reason that we were one of the 17 or 19 banks that financed that is because our team reviewed the environmental impact and we concluded that it was it was a risk that we, we were willing to take. Okay, I just want to listen to the last 10 seconds again and then we'll and then we'll talk about it, okay? One question, sure why our- did Wells Fargo finance this pipeline when it was widely seen to be environmentally unstable? Uh, again, the reason that we were one of the 17 or 19 banks that financed that is because our team reviewed the environmental impact and we concluded that it was it was a risk that we were willing to take. All right. So I hope that you know what I was trying to call your attention to in there. <laughs> so like what I will let you guys discuss, but I'll, I'll just explain why I wanted to play this clip so much. So does it is it funny because it makes the CEO look embarrassed? Yeah, it, I love it. But that's really not what's important here. What's important here to point out, and then I'll go to you guys for comment, is that this is like the quote, like people think that when you like say stuff like the sort of thing we say on the show, right? People get email and people will say like, no, you know, you're just super ignorant. Like I, I can't really, I don't really know enough about this subject to argue with what you guys are saying, but I know you're wrong because there's really smart and important. Like you're just some, you're just some community radio host. What do you know? Right. These CEOs, the, these people, they really know what they are. They're doing right. This is the answer you get, right? If somebody sat Justin Trudeau down in a room where he didn't have like crowds of cameras he could hide behind and actually grilled him, actually forced him to answer questions this is the quality of answer you would get but 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 we just but, but, but people but no like why did you do it well we weren't the like literally listen the first thing he said well we seven we're just one of 17 we're just one of 17 but it looked good to us well what's odd is that he's she's saying um you you you're you you're not responsible as an investor in this in this pipeline you don't think you're responsible for the environmental cleanup but then he says we invested because it's a risk we were willing to take yeah so he's taking the risk but also saying he's refusing to be responsible right. for and the who pays for it risk. and who pays for that risk well, who who pays the consequences well that's the, what's what's fascinating about that is there's he's done two things in response the first is indict the rest of the financing industry uh so yes wells fargo his, his best defense i'm sorry to cut you off his best defense was if we're in trouble then so is everyone else and that was his best and only defense well but but then yeah and then the second thing he goes to which i find like the idea like you were literally the sentence before that you are saying you are not respond like like the risk we are willing to take there he has just stated that he is not responsible for the environmental risk so therefore you therefore that means that there, you are taking no risk. Like you, I, the, the only risk they examined was the financial risk, or, or else you'd be paying for this. Like he, He's simultaneously saying, we are not responsible for the problem, but we looked into it and decided that the risk for us was fine. Of it course was a, it was fine. It, it wasn't yeah. your problem. Yeah, but then, and then the next the next day in Congress, they asked him like, hey, do you guys, are you guys okay if we pass a law to, to make you responsible, to uh, help you make decisions that are more in line with everyone's benefit instead of just your own? No, hell no. We're going to pay millions and millions of dollars paying lobbyists to pretend to make sure that we are never, ever held responsible for the consequences of our gambling. But when we get to cash out, we get all the money. Yeah, this is a risk we were willing to have you take. Yeah, yeah, that is exactly what he meant to say. And so the point of that was like, hey, yeah, OK, we can we can I was about to curse. Uh, we can poop on on the CEO well, Wells Fargo uh, CEO all we want. But the point of today's clip, the point of my special section today is that this is the reply. Justin Trudeau, uh, Doug Ford, they, they don't have any better answers. Even the people, that's why I put Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau in the same camp. They don't have any better answers. Justin Trudeau doesn't have any better answer for you about why his climate policy is the one we should go to than that one. 
these are the people that people are like deferring to. These are the people that people email us and say, no, 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 you don't understand. These guys are all over it. Okay. No, they don't. They don't have any idea what they're doing. They don't have any connection to reality. That's why I pointed out the, the Wilbur Ross thing from earlier. They don't have any idea how much a can of soup costs. They don't have any idea. So when they're even talking about those risks and they're saying they thought they could accept them, they don't actually even understand what those risks are because they're not the one taking the risk. And not only that, but they don't have any understanding of the gravity, right? If, if Wilbur Ross is the guy who's talking with uh, this CEO about what the policy should be, and they think that this government workers have so much money that they can just take several months off work and it's no big deal, and what do you mean they need to go to a food bank? This is the problem, people. You need to stop trusting that these people know what they're doing. They don't. They're self-interested, and they're extremely ignorant. Well, and to, yeah, to sort of to, to loop this back to the very, very beginning of this of this of this show um, or this episode, the this that is the example of how income inequality uh, creates this environment where this level of environmental destruction is 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 not only actually just possible; it is it is it is business as usual. You know, the fact that good practice, it's good. It's good. Yeah, it's best practices and it's business as usual. You know, like the fact that the term business as usual has become has become actually sort of the the nightmare scenario for climate um, is it should be should imply that therefore business is wrong. Like if the if the if if when you have the term business as usual being thrown out there as as that's how you end up with four degrees by you know twenty one hundred which then you know which then can be, leap to eight if you lose all the clouds, um, you know is if that's business as usual then the que- then the question you have to ask is okay then what's wrong with business and and that is why that is why the the Green New Deal. And answered that question in the 30s, in the 20s and 30s. There was a finance question: was what's wrong with business? And at the time, one of the major things wrong with business was that it was like in the states, it was massively exploitive, exploitative to to the to the working to the working class. And and the Green New Deal aimed to solve at least part of that, or aimed to alleviate at least part of that. It didn't solve it by any means, but it, it certainly it was a step towards alleviating that. And we're coming up, we're in the middle actually of yet another crisis of the question: What is wrong with business? And the answer is uh, like a lot of things. And the solu- so the solution has to be as big as the problem. And that's what the Green New Deal does. And that's sort of why it, uh, again, as a wide ranging set of options, is the sort of only way forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sorry. Uh, uh, I'm. I know I, I could have gone on for another hour about that, but I just like seriously. Like uh, you know, we've. We, I've joked before about having a soundboard on this show, but uh, often the most incredibly stupid things that Justin Trudeau says are mysteriously not available for public audio use. Uh, but I think we might have our first winner. Get used to hearing at least the last ten seconds of that clip because this is a window into the people that run our lives. People, they're self-interested, they're greedy, and they're foolish. Uh, and that's the theme of this week's show. <laughs> have a good green week, everybody. Take care. Thank <laughs> you.